Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 23. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 11 this morning. And we're going to see how the Sanhedrin was divided and how the Lord again in His providence rescues Paul from a terrible beating and no doubt certain death if the Lord had not intervened. So, uh, we'll start in Acts chapter 23. I'll start reading in verse 6. Again, the Apostle Paul has been brought by the commander of the Romans into the council. This would be the Sanhedrin. And uh, he first words that came out of Paul's mouth was that he had lived his life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest ordered him to be slapped. He responded by saying, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And in violation of the law, you ordered me to be struck. And then someone admonished him, is this the way you speak to the high priest? And then he says, you know, uh, basically I was not aware that he was a high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So, he's right there in this very tense situation standing in front of the highest court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. So we pick it up now in verse 6 of Acts chapter 23. And I'll read for you the inspired Word of God, so please listen with faith and listen with reverence. Verse 6. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, The commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, again, he's, uh, he's at the council. Again, this is another one of the words to express the Jewish Sanhedrin. They are the council, the, uh, the, the main council of Israel. Normally, the Sanhedrin met daily, except on the Sabbath and on feast days. And they used to meet on the south side of the temple main complex in the middle of the Temple Mount area. 
you have the temple and then you have the court of Israel, the court of the women. And then there's a kind of a larger courtyard around the temple area. And then you have that wall, that sorg, that said Gentiles cannot pass this on the pain of death. And then you have the court of the Gentiles. And then way on the south side, the south wall of the large temple compound, you have Solomon's portico. So the Sanhedrin used to meet right there in the inner sanctuary area. Their building, the room that they would meet in, was on the south side of the main temple compound. Around 30 AD, that was moved over to Solomon's portico. So now it's out in the general area where the Gentiles can be. And I think that's very strategic and providential that we'll see uh, in a little bit. But one of the responsibilities of the Sanhedrin was to identify and confirm when the Messiah showed up. And there were about a dozen false messiahs running around in the first part of the first century A.D. And they would be deceiving the people. And it was the responsibility of the Sanhedrin to identify the Messiah and expose the false messiahs. You know, that's why they sent a delegation out to John the Baptist asking him if, if he was the Messiah. So that was part of their, their job, their responsibility. Sadly, of course, they were totally blind and failed to see the true Messiah when he appeared, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the Sanhedrin, or this council that he's still in front of, and usually they would meet in a semicircle. And whoever was on trial or whoever was speaking would stand in the middle and address the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up mainly of Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees, uh, their name, there is some debate on what the name Sadducees means, but it probably comes from a word that suggests that they're claiming to be the righteous ones. They're the righteous ones. Of course, they were anything but righteous. And names don't always accurately represent the character. I mean, just take Planned Parenthood as a name of an organization. That does not represent the character of the organization. They're out about slaughtering babies in the womb. That's what they're about. But oh, it's Planned Parenthood. And it sounds so nice. And it sounds so appropriate. But that's not what the organization is primarily about. So names don't always represent. Similar to the Sadducees, the righteous ones. They weren't righteous at all. They were about as corrupt as you can get. The Sadducees are a sad bunch. And that maybe that word in their, in their name might be more appropriate. They were a sad lot indeed. Sadducees. They represent the Jewish aristocracy. The high priest was always, from, was always a Sadducee. The chief priests that you read about in the Gospels were also probably Sadducees. The Sadducees as a group were very pro-Roman. They had worked out a compromise with the Roman political leaders and rulers. And that uh, enabled them to amass great wealth, great power, and great influence. They were not so popular with the masses of the people though. So externally they were religious, they were very political, And they saw Jesus as a threat to the status quo. They hated Jesus. They rejected Him as Messiah. 
He was there up turning, overturning the money changer tables and driving out the animals. In their temple, they got the revenues from that. The Sadducees primarily benefited from that. So Jesus was a rabble-rouser. He's a troublemaker. They wanted to get rid of Him. What did they believe? Well, look at verse 8. Luke records for us, uh, and this would be beneficial mainly for Gentile readers of the book of Acts. He says, Sadducees say there is no resurrection. There's no bodily resurrection at all. They rejected that. They said there's no angels. They rejected the idea of angels. And they also rejected the idea of spirits. So no resurrection of the body. So they understood that there's no future state for the body or the soul. That when the body died, it went back to dust and ashes and that was it. They taught that the duty of serving God was without the hope of reward or the fear of punishment. So they denied both heaven and hell because they didn't believe that the body was ever resurrected. So they rejected the resurrection of the body. They also rejected that there were any angels. They didn't believe in angels. Good angels or demons or anything like that. No spirits of any kind. And the word spirits here probably includes the immaterial soul of man. They didn't believe in that either. They didn't believe that you had an immaterial soul that when you died, it lived on. They they rejected the idea of the immortality of the soul. They believe that the soul was, if we, whatever that is, was, was material in nature. And when the body died, the soul died, and that was it. It was gone. It didn't continue to exist. So they rejected the immortality of the soul. There's no existence beyond death in their understanding. There's no punishments. There's no rewards in Hades. So they were very much materialists. And uh, thirdly, the thing that's not included in verse 8, but they certainly held to as well according to other resources, is that they only held to the Torah as Scripture. First five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest of it as not being Scripture. And that's amazing because you find angels in Genesis and you find angels in other places, but they allegorize those to mean totally something else. But they didn't believe in angels. The Pharisees, the other group that are mentioned here in verse 6, Sadducees and the the Pharisees, their name basically means separated ones. And they boasted that they separated themselves from all the corrupting influences from the Greeks and the Romans. So the Pharisees, their name means the separated ones. And to be more accurate, basically all they were separated from was from God. They thought they were separating themselves from the world, the corruption, but they were separated from God. They rejected God's Messiah they saw Jesus as a threat to their rabbinic traditions and all the minutiae, their man-made laws. And their legalism blinded them to the light that had come into the world, the light of Christ. They're also in the Gospels described as lovers of money, proud, arrogant, haughty, self-righteous. They despise the unlearned. 
They paraded their own religious righteousness publicly for, for the applause of men, hoping really to receive alms. So there's an underlining money uh, motivation. In general, they were corrupt hypocrites. Yeah, they were the separated ones. They were separated from truth. They were separated from holiness and separated from God. However, in some of their beliefs, they were more orthodox. They were more biblical. They did believe in a resurrection of the body. They did believe in angels. They did believe in, in, uh, in the soul, the spirits of men. So they were in contrast to the Sadducees. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, says that for a Sadducee to become a Christian, he had to abandon the major tenets of his own religion. For a Pharisee, he could hold to some of those tenets, and of course he'd have to come to faith in Christ, but there were some teachings that they held that were biblical as well. It's interesting that the book of Acts records some Pharisees did become Christians, but no Sadducees are specifically uh, indicated as becoming Christians. So they're very much diametrically opposed theologically with one another. But they did agree on one thing. They did agree in their mutual hatred of Jesus and His claims to be the Son of God and to be the Messiah. They agreed on that together. They were not really interested in justice. They only wanted to get rid of Paul who was preaching Christ, who was a threat to their religion and their power. And the Jews really weren't interested in law and order either because they were, they've already stirred up two riots. They just want to get rid of their common enemy, the Apostle Paul, who's standing in front of them. So again, they've already stirred up two riots, so they're not all that interested in decorum or law and order. And they're about to soon start up a third riot. So, But that's where they agreed. They rejected Christ. They rejected the Gospel. They hated the Apostle Paul because he stood for those things. So in verse 6, the Apostle Paul, perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other was Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the open resurrection of the dead. Now remember, Paul had just been slapped illegally by the order of the high priest for confessing they had a good conscience. There's no chance he's going to get a fair hearing in this, in this uh, trial or this hearing or however you want to describe it. He knows that. He knows the deck is stacked against him. He knows their minds are made up. No matter what he says, he's not going to get a fair hearing. All they want to do is put him to death. There's nothing he can say or do that's going to change their minds. And his life is in danger as will become evident here in a moment or two. It's already been in danger. They've already expressed their desire to want to kill him. So he knows he's in the lion's den. And his life, again, is being threatened. And Paul didn't want to be turned over to the Sanhedrin. And I think he thinks in the back of his mind, possibly, that he's concerned that the commander, the Roman commander that has brought him to this meeting, 
just kind of really wants to get rid of the whole situation himself and be rid of it. And he's concerned that the commander might turn him over to the Sanhedrin if he realizes that the main controversy is just uh, over Jewish beliefs. And he knows if the commander releases him into the custody of the Sanhedrin, it's going to be lights out. The commander was, uh, again, probably pain with having to be involved in all this. He's still trying to figure out what's going on. He doesn't understand it. But if he comes to the conclusion that this is a crime under the jurisdiction of the Jewish religion only, then he might be tempted to turn him over to them. And Paul realizes that. So Paul, in verse 6, loudly identifies himself as a Pharisee. Now, he was a Pharisee. He was raised as a Pharisee. So this is true. He's not lying. He's not deceiving. He was, he was raised up as a Pharisee. He's the son of a Pharisee. There are certain beliefs that he still holds as a, as a Pharisee that, that are consistent with Christian, with, with the New Testament as well. So he's merely identifying his upbringing and, and basically his life experience. He was certainly trained as a Pharisee under Gamaliel. He certainly continues to share some of the doctrines that they hold in common. So he had every right to identify himself that way. But then he adds that he is on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And I think that this was somewhat of a masterly stroke of genius on Paul's part. I'm assuming he realized that uh, really his life was in great danger. And that basically, he knew the division within the Sanhedrin between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And if he stands up and identifies with with one of those groups on a topic and an issue where they were very vehemently in opposition to one another on, i.e. the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, then it may stir up enough controversy that would create another riot and the commander would have to come in and rescue him and take him out of there. And I think his plan by the grace of God seemed to work. I'm assuming that's probably why he did this. So he identified with the Pharisees. He provoked this uproar, this flaring tempers. So the commander sent in, who was there, he was there listening, he was there overseeing this thing somehow. And he sent in the troops and they had to grab Paul by force and rescue him out of this, this dangerous situation again. Now notice what Paul does not say in verse 6. He doesn't say, I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he would have said that, the Pharisees would have turned against him equally as much as the Sadducees. Because they didn't want to acknowledge that Christ arose from the dead. But if he speaks generically of the doctrine itself, which they did agree on, then he could basically align himself with the Pharisees. So he turned their united opposition against him into an opposition toward one another. And this is really quite brilliant by the grace of God. So the assembly 
was divided. So look at verse 7. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. And then drop down to verse 9. And there occurred a great uproar. And some of the scribes, the scribes were normally of the uh, Pharisaical party. They were the experts of the law, but they were Pharisees as well. The scribes were. So the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly. And what's interesting about this particular word, to argue heatedly, it's uh, used in other contexts of actually coming to physical combat. To actually fighting one another. Now that may or may not have been the case here, but this is the nature of the division. They were arguing heatedly. I mean, they're about ready to come to blows on this thing. We find, And they say, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Because they did believe in those things. Verse 10, And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from there by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, the commander is afraid that Paul's going to be torn to pieces. And this particular expression, to be torn to pieces, is found in only one other place in the uh, New Testament. And that's of the, uh, in Mark chapter 5, verse 4, of the uh, demoniac who tore in pieces the chains, or tore apart the chains that were binding him. So this was a violent situation. The commander thought, they're going to they're tear Paul apart. They're going to tear him up into pieces. So this, uh, the assembly was incredibly divided. Now that doesn't surprise me, because the deeds of the flesh include enmity, strife, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, factions. There's nothing of the Holy Spirit here in the Sanhedrin. When the Spirit is absent and the flesh controls, you're going to get this kind of stuff going on. And that's what's going on here. Sad. But the deliverance from being dismembered came by the commander's intervention where he goes in and he rescues the Apostle Paul. Now what, what's interesting about this situation is I think there are, there are times in the Old Testament when God uses a similar tactic to turn His enemies upon themselves to basically uh, fight against one another. And that's really kind of what's happening here. For example, remember when Gideon was going up to fight against the Midianites. And they stood around the camp of the Midianites. His little tiny little army did. They blew their trumpets. And when they blew the trumpets, Judges says, the Lord set the sword of one against another throughout the whole army and they fled. So God actually took the enemies of His people and turned them against one another. They fought and slew one another. Same thing with Solomon. But my favorite example is with King Jehoshaphat. What a name. Preparing to fight a three-headed enemy of Ammon, 
a coalition of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. And before they went out to face this coalition of the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites, King Jehoshaphat called upon his people to trust in the living God. They stopped before they went to battle. They started singing praises to God. They started worshiping God. And when they started singing praises to God, this is in 2 Chronicles 20, the Lord caused Ammon and Moab to turn against Edom. And they destroyed the Edomites. And once they destroyed the Edomites, the Ammonites and the Moabites turned against themselves and destroyed themselves. So by the time Jehoshaphat came with his army to the battle, all there was left to do is to load up all the spoil and take it home. I mean, it was an easy day's work. The Lord did all the battle. He did all the fight. He turned them against one another. And that's what the Lord is doing with the Apostle Paul. I must admit, there are times when I uh, am inclined to pray that the Lord would do that to the enemies of the church today. The enemies of the Gospel. The radical left, the Marxists, which the bottom line, ultimately, this is a, a satanic movement to destroy the church. There is no room for God in Marxism. No room. It's ultimately, I think, uh, part of the spiritual battle that we're in. And I think, I, I mean, and they are, they are organized. And uh, ultimately, I think their desire is to take away our religious freedoms, to silence us, to persecute us. I think that's part of the satanic uh, inroad of all this. And I think I see this even happening at times. Even within the, the radical lesbian feminist movement. Remember uh, Martina Navratilova, the famous uh, women's tennis star. I think she won Wimbledon like nine times. She is a spokesperson for the radical lesbian feminists. And yet she stood up and said, you know, for, for men, these trans women, these men who think they're women and they tar start taking a few hormones and want to engage in, in female sports activities, that's wrong, Martina Navratilova said. And she stood up against that and the LGBT group that's for all the trans stuff just viciously attacked her so that the, the left started eating its own. It's like a snake starting to swallow its own tail. And I think you also see it in the rioting today that's going on. I think that's, I think a lot of liberals are saying, you know, this isn't really right. And there's division even in some of those movements. God sometimes can turn the enemies of His people into fighting against themselves. And again, this is what's going on with the Apostle Paul. So for the third time, the commander rescues Paul from certain death. And in verse 11, we read after the commander takes him in back into the barracks, basically saves his life again. And then in verse 11, we read, but on the night following, immediately following, the Lord, that would be Jesus, 
stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So Jesus' words, I think, would have been an incredible blessing to the Apostle Paul. Uh, Notice basically that he affirms and I think uh, endorses him coming to Jerusalem. Uh, you know, we had that that issue earlier, whether it was sinful for him to come to Jerusalem and be engaged in the temple with the four men that were uh, doing sacrifices to complete their vow. But nothing of disapproval here. As you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, he says, Paul, you've come, you've witnessed, you've done it solemnly. And there's an endorsement, I think, of that here that seems to be implied. But he also says, you're also going to go to Rome and witness for me there. You're going to go to Rome. Now what's so, I think, interesting about this is that Paul had spoken several times of his desire to go to Rome to preach and to minister to the believers there. Uh, Acts 19, Romans 1, which he wrote earlier, he wanted to go to Rome. He didn't know if he would or not, but he wanted to go. That was his heart. He desired certainly to go there as a free man to preach the gospel, but God was going to send him there, though his circumstances would be different than what he probably preferred. I'm sure he preferred to go there as a free man and not as a prisoner of the Roman government, in effect. He would go there as a prisoner of Rome. But his ministry would continue on only in a different way. He would minister to some because he was a prisoner that he would never see, never meet, never have an opportunity to preach to had he not been a prisoner. Even when Paul was in prison in Rome, several years down the road from now, he's going to write a letter to the Philippian church and listen to what he says to them. He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. So even though he was arrested and he's going to go to Rome, which was his heart to go there, He would go under circumstances that he never envisioned, and yet those circumstances gave him an audience that he would never have had. At the end of his letter to the Philippian church in chapter 4, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So maybe Paul was involved in some of them coming to faith. We don't know. But he had a ministry even to those in Caesar's household, which he probably never would have had if he wasn't a prisoner. So we may think that when Paul got arrested in Jerusalem, that basically his ministry was stalling out. That God was going to put him on the shelf, but nothing could be further from the truth. God was not giving him a retirement party and say, here Paul, here's, here's, here's your gold watch for 20 hard years of service in my kingdom. You know, now you're on your own. Enjoy the rest of your life. No, his ministry would continue on, but just in a different way. 
The trying circumstances of your life will not stop your ministry and your witness for Jesus Christ. It may redirect it in a different way, but it doesn't stop it. It may not be what you envisioned, but God is still in control. And I would think that this would have comforted Paul to know that he wasn't going to die in Jerusalem. I think that was still a real possibility that he had entertained. You remember, he had said, I'm willing to go there and die. And I think up until the Lord reassures him that in fact he he is going to send him to Rome, that that was still a possibility in Paul's mind. But to hear Jesus say, as you've witnessed for me in Jerusalem, so you'll witness for me in Rome. And then Paul at least understood the big plan of the Lord. Not how it's all going to work out, but that God was going to take him to Rome. These words, take courage, I think are, are especially sweet to the believer's heart. Take courage. Sometimes we, we lose our courage. Sometimes we do get weighed down with the fears and the just the trials and discouragements of life. And the Lord tells Paul, still incarcerated, still under as a prisoner of Rome, take courage. I'm not done with you yet. Take courage. These are the words that Christ has spoken to His followers in many different occasions throughout the Gospels. You'll hear Him say to His disciples, take courage. One of the most beautiful is found in John 16, verse 33, as He's preparing His disciples for His departure. And He says to them, These things I have spoken to you so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And that is a promise for every believer of every age. And Paul knows that Christ's will for him is now to go to Rome. And nothing can stop that now. Not the Jews, not the Romans, not even the circumstances to follow that God was going to get him to Rome. And that was something that greatly encouraged the Apostle. Well, in all of this, we see really the uh, providence of God at work. Uh, rescuing the Apostle Paul again from a very dangerous, deadly set of circumstances. We see the providence of God, I think, worked out in many different ways. One of them is just in the moving of the Sanhedrin from inside or connected to the main sanctuary of the temple, that temple compound, to outside in the court of the Gentiles under the Solomon's portico. Now, why is that providential? Because if the Sanhedrin was still meeting inside that sacred temple compound area, the Romans never would have been able to enter into that. They couldn't transgress that that little short wall that went around that threatened death for any Gentile that passed inward. And they had allowed that the, uh, that the Jews could kill that Gentile if he went beyond that wall, even if he was a Roman citizen. 
But in the providence of God, that meeting place of the Sanhedrin was moved out into the courtyard of the Gentiles so that now the Romans could be nearby. They could be right there. The commander could be there listening in. And once it, the riot started happening again, he rushed in and they took Paul by force and took him out and saved his life. And all of this you see in the providence of God. Now that happened, that change of location occurred around 30 AD. So that was probably 25 years earlier. But in the providence of God, it saved Paul's life. So we see that God is working way in advance to do things and order things that many years later will become visible and we can see, oh, what, the, what a blessing that was. Maybe not at the time. But one of the things we see in this is that our, our days are in the hands of God. That was not the day for Paul to die. And no one can add one day or take away one day from our life. And Kent Hughes, one of the commentaries I was reading, tells a story of way back in 1926, a young missionary by the name of Raymond Edmund in his mid-twenties was serving the Lord in a mountain village up in Ecuador. And he came down with typhus fever. And it, it ravaged his body so bad they had to carry him down to a a little town to try to get some medical help for him. They got him to a doctor. And the doctor looked at him and evaluated and did everything he could for him. And then when he noticed that his feet were growing cold, he said, he's not going to survive this. He's going to soon die. One of the other missionaries ordered a coffin for him. His wife, having no black dress, actually took her wedding dress and dyed it black in preparation for the funeral of her husband. They actually set a time for the funeral based on the doctor's word because he, was, he knew that young missionary was about to die. 41 years later, fast forward to 1967, the fourth president of Wheaton College was addressing the student body when he made a slow half-turn and he collapsed and died and went to be with the Lord. That president was none other than that young missionary. His name by that time was Dr. Raymond Edmund. And it just goes to show that we don't know the day of our death. We can't control those things. That God and God alone knows. And though everyone else thought, surely this... He was going to die. He lived 41 years later and became the president of Wheaton College and died at a, at a much older age. See, God was not through with him yet. Even with typhoid fever, his day, his last day had not yet come. So God in His providence, it was not Paul's day to die. He had worked through His providence to move that Sanhedrin in a place where the Romans could come in and by force take possession of Paul and save his life. And I think we can find encouragement that our lives are equally safe in the hands of God. The day of our birth, the day of our death is all determined by God. And there's certain encouragement and peace that we can have in that. But secondly, I think we see the providence of God not only in just the location of where the Sanhedrin was meeting, but also in the upbringing of the Apostle Paul. 
his Pharisaical upbringing. And this enabled him to basically turn the spiritually dead Sanhedrin against itself that created such a great dissension so that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces and had to rush in and rescue him. So the life experiences of the Apostle Paul were very much ordained by God's providence so that at this critical point in his life, that that would be the means by which Paul would be spared by the grace of God. So your upbringing, the circumstances of your being raised, is all a part of God's providence in your life as well. And that can encourage us. You know, it's interesting that Again, in that letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church, his upbringing as a Pharisee and all that, you know what he called it? He said he counted it as loss and as rubbish that he might gain Christ. So, But yet, even in God's providence, the Lord still used it for good in his upbringing. Although he learned that it did not contribute anything to his salvation. Not anything whatsoever. Another aspect of the providence of God in this whole circumstance is that Jesus controls the, the circumstances of Paul's ministry. He not only controls his life, the day of his death, which wouldn't be for a number of years later, but he controls the very circumstances of Paul's ministry. Jesus controls the timing of his trip to Rome. Paul may have thought, well, golly, I guess I'm, I'm going to go to Rome. They'll ship me out tomorrow. But he didn't realize he's going to go to Caesarea and spend two years there before he finally ends up in, in Rome. So that God is controlling the timing of his ministry as well. Rather, um, he probably would have wished he could have gone to Rome and pleaded his case and be released. But that was not God's plan. And he's going to be in prison as a Roman prisoner for a at least another four years in his life. But God in His infinite wisdom ordains not only the events of our life, but when those things happen. And in God's divine plan for your life, as with the Apostle Paul's life and my life, it includes all those frustrating delays that we have in life. All of those closed doors that seem to turn us off in a different direction. All the failures that, that end up changing us and moving us in, in another pattern or another path. All of that is a part of God's providence. And that was true with the Apostle Paul. He needed to go to Caesarea because he needed to preach to a governor and a king there. Because remember when the Lord Jesus set apart the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, He says, you'll be a witness to me, not only in Israel, but before kings and rulers. And so when he's in Caesarea is when part of that is fulfilled. He, need, he must go there. But of course, his ministry was not over, but it would be different. God was in control ordering it and the timing of events was under his, his control. Also, the means of those events his path forward was not going to be easy for the Apostle Paul. It was God's will for him to go to Rome to minister there, but it's not going to be an easy path getting there. The timing and the circumstances were still in God's hands. 
He's not going to experience a miraculous deliverance like he did in Philippi or when Peter had the prison doors open up. With Paul, it was the earthquake, you remember? Jesus didn't tell Paul that he's going to send him to Rome on a luxury cruise ship. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. He's going to be in a terrible ship voyage and shipwreck. But through all of that, you see, Paul was continuing to have to learn the truth that he said, even with the thorn in his flesh, that he had to trust in Christ and His providence and His control. So that he could say, Jesus could say, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. See, your path forward may not be easy. It may have a lot of ups and downs. It may have a lot of things you didn't plan on. But through all of that, you can know that God's providence is guiding and directing and controlling. And that can give us a peace when it seems like things are out of control. And that can give us a confidence when we don't understand and we don't like the circumstances that we're in. But if you know that God is in control, He's in control of the timing, He's in control of the events themselves, then we can have that peace. Take courage. The Lord said to Paul, take courage. He's going to need courage going forward because his circumstances, again, were not going to be easy. We don't always see the invisible hand of God guiding and directing our paths, do we? God controls our futures, both the timing, both the means by which it all happens. But when we believe by faith that God's hand is controlling those things, then we can have a peace that surpasses comprehension. That enables us to cast off anxiety, to cast off fear and stress, and to respond in the mind of Christ in a way that will honor the Lord. And then the third providence, or the last providence, is just that Jesus controlled the timing of that word of encouragement. I'm thinking to myself, if I was the Apostle Paul, and at this point in time, in verse 11, the, Paul, the Lord Jesus appears to him and says, take courage, I'm going to send you to Rome. If I had been Paul, I said, Lord, why didn't you tell me that weeks ago? I mean, things would have been so much easier on me if you just told me ahead of time, Lord. But the Lord doesn't always send those that comfort when we want that comfort. Sometimes we've got to live with just the, the stress and the angst of not knowing and not being settled and, and not knowing the future. But see, all of that is designed as well to teach us to humble ourselves and trust in the plan of God that we don't know and oftentimes don't understand. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And we have to learn that. And that's why at the right time when Jesus thought that Paul needed it and it would have the most good in his life, He came to him after three riots, after being beaten up, after being you know, almost put to death or they were desiring to put him to death. At the right time, He comes down and He speaks that word of peace and comfort to His heart. And what we need to be doing is in our trials, we need to be in the Word of God. Because this is where Christ speaks His comfort and peace to our hearts. But experiencing that peace is equally a part of God's plan and timing. 
And sometimes we live with a lot of unnecessary stress and fear because we, we don't have that peace. But we're to, to draw near and pray and trust that He's in control, that He's working out His purpose through our trials, advancing His kingdom, using us in ministry, even though it's going in a different direction than what we envisioned. But yet through that, He'll open up new opportunities for us to bear witness for Christ. And as we trust in His invisible hand on the steering wheel of our life, and His foot on the accelerator and also the brakes to speed things up or slow things down, when we trust that God is in control, then we can find that peace. That He's going to get us where He wants us to be. Because He is the Lord God. He commands the wind and the waves. He created the heavens and the earth. He is directing and guiding your life. And you can trust in Him. Well, the final thing I want to just say is that Jesus, uh, Paul's affirmation uh, back up in, in verse 6 when he says, I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. That's our faith. We have the hope of the resurrection ahead of us. That was Paul's confidence. And that's a confidence that we have through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we too are given a rock-solid hope and confidence that we will be resurrected as well. Remember what Paul wrote to the Philippian church again, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will He do when He comes? Verse 21, Philippians 3 who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That's our hope. They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. And we, like the Apostle Paul, can say that we embrace the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Because that's the ultimate destiny for every believer. Because Christ was bodily, physically raised from the dead, so will every believer. And that's our blessed hope. That's something that we look forward to that has an ability to transform our minds and to get our, our, our minds off of all the little problems we have here and look to the ultimate victory that Jesus Christ has won for us. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead was His affirmation. And that is our affirmation. We believe in that hope and resurrection of the dead. Well, baptism, here's my segue. Baptism is a beautiful picture of our identification in Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. It's a picture of that. And it represents not only our spiritual resurrection that every believer has already experienced in his heart through regeneration, where our spiritually dead souls have been resurrected so that now we can repent and believe and embrace Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. But it also is a picture of our future destiny, the future bodily resurrection of the saints. For all who have put their Trust in Christ alone for salvation. I hope you have this morning. Because there is a day of judgment to come. 
There is a day of resurrection to come. And everyone will stand before the judge on that future day. And if you do not have your sins forgiven, you will give an account for all of your sins before a holy God who's a holy judge. And He will rightly and justly punish you for your sins. But Christ offers forgiveness. He offers salvation. This is the good news of the Gospel. So acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you have in no way can get yourself to heaven. That you have broken His commandments. Broken His laws. And you turn in faith to Jesus Christ who alone can save you and forgive you. And He promised. This is the the glorious part of it. He promises that He will forgive you and save you if you repent and place your trust in Him. Well, we celebrate this morning one of the kids in our church who by the grace of God has recently done that. Uh, Naomi Hooser. And uh, we're going to close with our final hymn in just a moment. And then we will uh, proceed with the baptism. So before we sing, why don't we uh, go ahead and and bow our heads and close uh, for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for the Word of God that again directs our gaze to the controlling providence of Almighty God. And that, Lord, we can draw encouragement and comfort from realizing that as the Apostle Paul was going through a very difficult, dangerous time in his life that you were totally in control. And Lord, we thank you that we can be encouraged by that truth. That you're the same God who doesn't change. And when we go through trials and difficulties, Yea, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for Thou art with us. That You're in control, Your presence is with us, and You've promised that You're going to work all things together for good to those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. So Lord, thank You for the Spirit of God moving Luke to record this circumstance that we might be encouraged in our own lives from how we see you intervening on the sake of the Apostle Paul. Thank you that you're with us as well.